You ever been outside Reno, Mrs. Tabor? Once I walked to the edge of town. Doesn't look like there's much out there. Everything's there. Like what? The country. Well, what do you do with yourself? Just live. How do you just live? Well, you start by going to sleep. You get up when you feel like it. You scratch yourself. You fry yourself some eggs. You see what kind of a day it is. You throw stones at a can. Whistle. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing The Misfits. Starring Clark Gable. What makes you so sad? I think you're the saddest girl I ever met. Marilyn Monroe. This man never said that. I'm usually told how happy I am. That's because you make a man feel happy. Montgomery Clift. You know what some of these writers do? They just drop off and lay there like they were stone dead. Not me, boy. I don't think nothing. Right, Gay? That's right. You're just a natural-born fool. And Eli Wallach. Knowing things don't matter much. You got something a lot more important. What? You care. You really hooked into the whole thing, Rosalind. It's a blessing. Directed by John Houston. Yeah, I just gotta find another way to be alive, that's all. And if there is one, anymore. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I hope you're sober. It's Galley in Glasgow. Uh, it's better than wages. It's Devlin in London. I was in a nightclub in Kansas City called The Naked Truth, and they wasn't kidding. It's Patrick in London. That's right. You're just a natural-born fool. It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, gang. We are here in 2021, and you know what? Kind of feels a bit the same, doesn't it? I know everyone was saying how 2020 is behind us, let's move forward, but hey-ho, look at us all stuck in lockdown. And what better film, what better film to watch, right? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you could watch Biodome because that's about people literally in lockdown. In a dome. Wow, we went off track straight away, <laughs> didn't we? <laughs> we did. Maybe uh, we, maybe we should uh, go again. Oh, dear. <laughs> Don't need um, to go again, Devlin. What what did you pick <laughs> to watch and then talk about? <laughs> Biodome. I, I didn't watch Biodome. If that's uh, no, we watched uh, uh, um, the legends of the screen the king of hollywood himself clark gable marilyn monroe uh uh montgomery clift eli wallach in biodome Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> misfits from 1961 indeed indeed so it was your pick devlin this is a throwback and this was on our slate for a, a little while and then we we, we kind of just kept putting it up well, we put it off because we were heading towards christmas and things were starting to look a little, a little bit shaky in the uk mm. Um, so we thought maybe we'll try and keep everyone's spirits up, but it's been crushed. So we may as well now do it. So hence we're doing the misfits, right? So, so Devlin, tell us all and tell the listeners why we are going all the way back to 1961 to discuss the misfits. Uh, it was a film that I came across, uh, probably when I was around 18 ish, 17, 18, 19, something like that. Um, I, I assume. At some point or another, all of us were bought one of those big virgin film guides. Remember the one the size of a phone book? 
2001 films to watch before. There's a few, yeah. There's the 1001, and then there's the, the just the big. I think it was just called the Virgin Film Guide, but yeah, the one is right. big, big book. I, I had a couple of them. People used to buy them for for Christmas because I know you like the films. It was very sweet. And because I had little else to do with my time, I used to read quite a lot of it. Um, it was a really good way of finding these these films. And um, this one came up in the. I'm sure I just read a little synopsis and a little review of it. It wasn't even a particularly glowing review it was it wasn't like it was a five-star unmissable masterpiece it just sounded like fascinating and a mess and like really ambitious and um it was kind of it was a film that uh around when it came out is a little disregarded so uh there's i was probably around that age i i probably had a bit of a uh a ken for glamorous decadent tragedy and all that you know how you get in your late teen years. So um, I was intrigued by this idea of like this uh, late golden age Hollywood sort of petering out ahead of the sixties filmmaking revolution. Like I, I really loved all that guns blazing kind of new Hollywood stuff, the self aggrandizing mythologizing of stuff like Peter Biskin's easy riders, raging bulls. I remember reading that and thinking that there's something sort of really clean and easy about the idea that old Hollywood was kind of bloated and out of touch. And then you had these film school kids and they swept in with their artsy influences and their pretensions and they were going to sweep it all away, you know, like, like punk sweeping away stodgy old prog rock or grunge putting paid to glam rock. But, uh, the, the, this film was kind of, kind of sat in neither camp and i remember thinking that it sounded really fascinating it took me a long time to actually find it it wasn't until i got to university and we had it in the um in the library yet another oh, yes. uh, of the of the great great library films that mm-hmm. taped off tv with the the radio times clipping sitting inside the clamshell case and i just i watched it and i just found it really fascinating i think watching it on vhs as well just you know getting to see all the kind of the the film is literally sort of fading away on this tape and uh it's the idea that, you know, it put paid to the idea that new Hollywood was a total revolution because this film was like really sad and messy and strange in a way that I'd never really associated with this era of polished Hollywood stars. So I think that's why it stuck with me. So I've seen it quite a few times in the year since. But um, yeah, how about uh, any of you guys? Like Gally, have you seen this before? No, I'd never seen this before. But um, listening to your rationale when you were 18 and some of the things that you you know, that attracted you to it. It kind of get, makes me think about the last 12 months, to be honest with you. You know, you were talking about old Hollywood and we're currently going through a bit of a, a change and a revolution within, within our, our favorite medium right now, as far as film production. And I'm sure Patrick will be able to give us some insights, but also where sort of cinemas are going and where mm-hmm. the storytelling is going to end up and streaming services taking over and our habits changing and, those habits changing might very well mean that the stories that we get sort of fed or are produced for our eyes change. And I'd never seen this before at all. And, and one of the things that kind of um, surprised me was that I, I'd realized that I'd, I'd taken Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable for granted a little bit because I'd never, apart from the big hitters, I'd seen Some Like It Hot for Marilyn Monroe and I've seen Gone With The Wind because my mum had the double VHS um because it's like 10 hours long. Yep. Uh, and I've seen that many, many times. Um, but apart from that, I just know them as golden era icons. And and ve- very similar to how we discussed Brandon Lee in in sort of these things getting wrapped up in morbid fascination. Um, I probably just 
categorize these huge stars as pictures on posters that I could buy at the university uh, freshers yeah. sale. Um, so for me, this was a, a real, a real enlightenment and a real glimpse into who these people were uh, in this film. So uh, yeah, it was totally fresh eyes on this one. What about you, Patrick? You seen this one before? I have, Devin. I rented that the same copy hey. from the library at uni as well. Uh, I don't know whether you remember, like you talked about the Virgin book. The tutors at Leeds Met, they gave us like a watch list. Was it Steve? I'm trying to remember the tutor's name. Stephen something. The guy with the big afro. Um, he used to wear dungarees. <laughs> he used to be asleep half the time. I remember him interviewing me for the course and not me thinking, wow, he wasn't awake for that shit. Um, but he, I'm, I swear it was him that gave us a list of must watch or like okay. a watch list of films. I think maybe Laura Taylor updated it. Anyway, it was on there. And at uni, I went through that, this phase of, Right, I'm going to do film school properly. I'm going to be a proper film student. I'm going to watch these old films and, and educate myself. Uh, it was the first time I ever saw Casablanca at the time. Right. And that was one of them. I picked it because of Monroe, because as Gaddy said there, I wasn't familiar with Monroe's work because so much I, I knew some like it hot and I wanted to kind of w- watch her a bit more. Um, without realizing it was Clark Gable, but, uh, I, I think, no, I might save it for my, I think I just watched it for the sake of watching it and ticking off a list at the time. Okay, yeah. I don't think it fully resonated with me or I remembered it fully. So I was very glad to um, revisit it. That's my short little history. Yeah, God, when you were describing the bloody VHS copy, I was like, fuck me, I had that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I was trying to. Yeah, I don't think we spoke about it at uni Devlin. So I don't know. I don't remember mentioning it, but I, I went out and bought the DVD kind of straight afterwards. No way. Um, which I still have. My my old uh, DVD copy is ancient. I put it in the <laughs> other day and like the, just the, I was trying to set up the, the subtitles and there was all these like weird icons at the bottom. One of them was an envelope. So what the fuck is even? <laughs> I think I've got the same DVD thing. So I bought it off eBay for this. Yeah. And Terrible cover. You watched the original theatrical trailer for the yeah. film on the DVD. Yeah. It's bizarre. With the stills. It's just stills yeah. at the beginning, isn't it? And it's, then it goes it's into... It's so strange. It's stills of, of yeah. Houston, uh, Houston to start with. Yeah, uh, and Gable. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway, that's my... And then, so you've seen it that way as well, Matt? Well, my first encounters relate to Dev directly. Um, although I haven't seen... I hadn't seen the film before, the podcast... This one dates back to the old screen select love film era when, uh, Dev, you used to do, uh, you used to write reviews for the films that you rented and you used to put them on the, on the site. Just quite short, uh, snippets. And I remember reading your Misfits one and, uh, he, he used the word, uh, elegiac. I think I've pronounced that right. And I remember having to look it up because I didn't know what it meant. So uh, that was my first memory of, of this one. To anyone as Ill- ill-educated as me, it means a haunting and reflective lament for the dead. Um, uh, presumably like relating to the deaths of its stars and things like this idea that we're watching ghosts and Hollywood yeah. ghosts. So whatever you wrote was, was really intriguing that I, I rem- remembered it like to this day. And I even ripped you off, I think. And I started writing little reviews on there as well. And I lost them all when they, when they shut down and, and I, yeah, I lost my sight as well. I had a, a, a... I think it would have been a 
Tumblr or a yeah. description? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I backed them up and they're all gone, but um, yeah. I was also familiar with it because of Glenn Danzig and the band The Misfits who named yeah. themselves after this film. Um, and I remember talking to you, Dev, in Waterstones one day about Arthur Miller and me not knowing much about him. And we talked about The Crucible a little bit. And that's that's pretty much my relationship with the film. And that's just a long winded way of saying that I, I hadn't seen it until until now. So this was a good a good one to pick. Well, Devlin, I would imagine quite a lot of our listeners may not have seen this or have only heard heard of this through, like you say, those catalog uh books that say this is a film that you you should watch it's right. a prominent film it's yeah. got and then historical it's not the tv series of the similar name yeah no. yeah it's not the tv series and it's not that band either no. so why don't you give us a, a sort of a plot summary and then we'll talk about the film uh sure um i didn't write a pithy plot summary for this one but uh luckily as i think we'll get into when we start talking about it the plot yeah, as a as a story uh, is maybe not so much the focus. Um, uh, Marilyn Monroe plays Rosalind, uh, who travels to Reno, Nevada, to get a quickie divorce from her husband, who is played by Kevin McCarthy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, in a scene which he went on to complain bitterly about that it was extremely short. <laughs> he barely even got a close up. Um, uh, she travels with her friend Isabel, who is her landlady, uh, another older divorce woman. And uh, in a bar, she meets up with uh, Guido, who is a, uh, a pilot, and Gay, who is a cowboy, uh, played by Eli Wallach and Clark Gable, respectively. Uh, impulsively, they decide to drive out to the desert, to uh, Guido's unfinished house, where... Uh, Rosalind finds herself kind of pulled between these two poles of these kind of, uh, uh, these two men who are kind of lavishing attention upon her and they're later joined by a third, uh, uh, a rodeo rider, uh, by the name of Purse, played by Montgomery Clift, who's taken one too many hits to the head. Uh, and the film culminates in them traveling out into the, the, the badlands, out into the desert, uh, to go mustanging which is uh, to hunt down misfit horses. That Ooh, pretty much sums up what happens, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah, without getting into all the uh, allegorical stuff. But I, I think one of the things that we, we should get straight into is, you know, and we've kind of inferred it and you've mentioned it in, in all of our kind of viewings or um, subsequent viewings is, is sort of what happens to these prominent stars, right? Mm. So most of the time, you would have heard me lament uh, uh, arbitrary trivia. But in this film, and um, when we're discussing this film, I actually think that the stories of the stars themselves uh, really does add uh, a layer um, to your viewing, especially yeah. if you know it prior the, to going the, in. So. Yeah, the origin of the, of the, the film is kind of more interesting than the origin of the story. Um, as you mentioned, Matt, it's written by Arthur Miller, one of kind of America's greatest playwrights, uh, writer of Death of a Salesman and The Crucible. And, um, the, the, the film has its origins in a story that he wrote in Reno. He was in Reno himself to get divorced. Uh, he was getting divorced because he had been having an affair with Marilyn Monroe, who he later married. Um, he decided he was going to write, uh, uh, he was, there was a, um, an interview from back in the sort of fifties 
where he was asked, you know, uh, some press conference because this was huge news at the time. So obviously he was being asked whether he would write a, uh, a part for, for Monroe. And he said, I, I don't know if I'd ever write a part for an actor or I write a part. And if the actors write for it, then they can take it. But he kind of changed his mind. And, um, it's, it's an uncomfortable detail that is, uh, mentioned in a making of documentary. And it's, it's a little kind of needlessly intrusive, but it seems pointless to try and be demure about one of the most exploited public figures of the 20th century. So uh, apparently Marilyn Monroe in the relationship with Arthur Miller had suffered a miscarriage and, her confidence was was very shaken and uh, that she was not recovering very well. And for some reason, Arthur Miller thought that writing her a part that would allow her to kind of express herself artistically would uh, would help kind of bolster her confidence. Um, so the script emerged in kind of 1957 and they found a producer who was willing to give them quite a lot of free reign. Um and uh, they they signed up uh, uh, John Houston, who knew Marilyn Monroe from way, way, way back in um, the Asphalt Jungle in 1950. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, these these other stars kind of came into the project. But, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, tragically and famously, it's the last finished performance from Marilyn Monroe and the last screen performance at all for Clark Gable and I believe Montgomery Clift only completed maybe one other film after this. I think two or three. Right. But he was always a, a, a real insurance risk. He struggled to get work. He almost couldn't be signed up onto this film because he was having a, a, a lot of trouble in his life. And uh, uh, so, yeah, kind of tragedy sort of haunts this, this film in a, in a very, very, very blatant way. Mm. This is the second film that you've you've, you've picked with this similarity in a in that when when you spoke about the crow, there was a lot right, of yeah. surrounding it, it stars young stars ill fate, and here, uh, yeah, what, what, it, it's odd that you've picked two films in recent times that have yeah. such a prophetic nature. I think, um, uh, Gally, we were talking before where you you also said that, um the kind of catastrophic behind the scenes uh, chaos that went on behind the, the adventures of Baron Munchausen as well. <laughs> yeah. It was like, uh, obviously that, you know, far less tragic, but um, yeah, maybe that's just something that I don't know whether it's, I would hope it's not too morbid a fascination. Maybe it's that there's something about the way those films are created that bleeds out onto the screen and gives them a kind of a, a kind of urgency and an authenticity that's maybe not there in films that are a little more kind of calculated and a little more um successful really like yeah. the the shoot for this film seemed to be extremely fraught um mm. monroe and miller's marriage was collapsing throughout um the the shoot seemed to drag on for a really long time there was uh, again on this making of documentary they said they were months behind schedule and considering this film essentially has, for the most part, four characters in a barely finished house, and scenes tend to be extremely long, so there's not that many setups. I don't and know. Largely, who... Marilyn Monroe not showing up on time too. It sounds like it. Yes, she also had to yeah. be hospitalized for a, an amount of time during shooting, uh, and a director who was drunk and asleep half the time as well. Yes. But I mean, at least he was there. I mean, unless he was gambling, but she yeah. was. Uh, Apparently when she did show up, she didn't really know her lines and there was a lot of problems going on. And she was, was she committed soon after as well? 
Um, I'm uh, not sure, actually. I, um, I must say, outside of this film... And, it gets a bit gossipy, doesn't it? I don't want to yeah. get too gossipy about it. Oh, no, it, but... it's, it's fine. It's, uh, outside of this film, I'm not really... I think, same as, as Gally was saying, that I'd... I'd despite knowing that these are, you know, the, the, the great kind of Mount Rushmore icons of, of Hollywood, I don't know much yeah. of their work beyond the kind of, um, with Monroe, I, uh, I really like this and I like bus stop, which I think is either the film she did before this or possibly a film very much in the same era. You know, the, this is post, uh, studying with Strasbourg Monroe. Yeah. That's to yeah. Who, who was on set? Did you see the thing about, um, yeah, was it Paula Strasbourg and they, yeah, had, it was. She had this big book and uh, Houston would get really annoyed because Marilyn would kind of direct her glances to, to her acting coach rather than him and respond to her more than him. And then Marilyn would get notes like, um, pretend that you're uh, a branch of a tree things like that and that would that would really frustrate um houston well that'll that'll explain the hugging of the tree then <laughs> yeah yeah, guys, but yeah um, apparently she, she was uh not, i don't know if she was committed but she was in a psychiatric hospital when it premiered yeah uh, that was something i found so yeah troubled thing all around matt just go back there you said uh strasburg just for those that don't know i mm. i'm I hope you're referring to Lee Strasberg, the inventor yeah, the of method. Method. Lee Strasberg, yeah. but in this case, it was Paula Strasberg who was. Right. Yeah. It's just, just for clarity's sake, because one of the other interesting wrinkles in this is that we have uh, an aging star in Clark Gable, someone whose best years had were long, long behind him. Mm. You know, as I say, Gone with the Wind was what, 39? So mm. he's 20 mm. years removed from that or over 20 years. And, um, and he's, he's up against all these, what he would perceive as younger stars, but they're also fading. Um, and they're all method actors. And he's, he's, he is the old school professional, turns up, knows his lines, raises his eyebrows. <laughs> um, but in this, I genuinely was touched by his performance because you can really, you said bleeding into it. It feels like. It's, it's an actor's workshop where they've, um, they've been basically told just be yourselves. Yeah. And it is, it's quite, it's quite surreal when I was watching it and, and thinking about what then happens to him, you know, as he pass away something like a week later, and then oh, within, yeah. within a week of that, he was, he was dead. Yeah. Um, and you just think about what the character, where the character sits in the story, you know, somebody who is, is trying to search for, for for relevancy someone yeah. who's, who's clinging on to the old ways and not able to adapt and you just think well yeah one quote from him um about the misfits was he, he saw a rough cut apparently before he died and he said this is the best picture i've made and it's the only time i've been able to act right um, so i'm not sure if he was referring to to houston or if he was referring like just to himself and where he was at that point but at least he got to see a version of it and and you know, give out that quote to let us know that he was, he was proud of what yeah. he did. Mm. Um, we should probably kind of go a little further into, I guess, his, his character in this. This short story that Arthur Miller wrote was based on people that he met when he was out in Reno. He was a little fascinated by these, um, these Mustangers, these kind of cowboy types who, despite the fact that it was well, well, well into the 1950s and the era of the old West was over. And I could imagine sitting within Reno, Nevada would, would, uh, would would kind of illustrate that as much as anything else this idea of just these cities that could just spring up 
mm. these little centers of commerce. You can have a desert and then all of a sudden you have, you know, Reno or, or more so Las Vegas, just this kind of this vast monument to consumerism and newness. And, uh, but just beyond it, you still have people who, uh, when they say they're mustanging, they're going out and they're, they're catching wild horses. That's, that's what they were doing. Does mustanging always end in dog and cat food? No. So I think that's the idea of, um, the, the kind of tragedy of his character is that, um, skipping through his entire arc very quickly, you have a character who at the start is very, uh, very proud man, very kind of, uh, kind of devilish wit. You see his, his opening appearances of him, uh, at a train station waving off yet another middle age. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I love how uh, dismissive he is when he turns his back and he's just like, I'm still I'll call you. Yeah. say, which one was that? Yeah. And he says, oh, she's a, she's a real good sport. <laughs> <laughs> and she wants, she wants him to come and run the second biggest laundrette in St. Louis. <laughs> But he, but he sets up and he meets up with his man Guido, who's, uh, uh, the pilot who, who helps him kind of corral these horses. And they, they immediately start talking about how they want to go out and do some Mustang in this weekend. But, um, uh, they get waylaid by, by meeting the, uh, the very elusive Roslyn. Interesting, isn't it, Devlin? So offline, I think we've messaged each other and this wasn't us being all, uh, like pervy, but, there is a there is a there is a beauty that Marilyn Monroe has that almost feels alien. When I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, "Your features are ridiculous." Like in a way that I was like, "You look like you're carved out of clay," um, as in someone has manufactured mm. your image. Now, obviously, of course, there is a, an element of that because she's uh, at this point what like a bit of a Playboy pinup. But well, that, I, I was that was kind of I was just I was really distracted by how ridiculously yeah. beautiful she looked on screen and the way that she's photographed as well. Like John Huston, for all of his uh, sleeping on set and <laughs> and generally being drunk, um, he knew how to capture the glint in her eyes because the opening sort of introduction to Roslyn um, is just fantastic, and I couldn't actually keep my eyes off off Marilyn Monroe and I wasn't even paying any attention to what she was saying which might be uh, a bit of a microcosm for her entire career but that was that was where I was at in that opening scene so just like the men in the story I myself as an audience member was sort of just captivated straight away and was like well I would like to spend more time with you uh yeah she's fucking fit as fuck isn't she <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, Matt. I was I was completely in love with her in this film. There you go. But all three men, all three main male characters in the film, fall for her almost instantly, right? Yeah. Um, in 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 ways that uh, because yeah. her character is is so unusual. She's intru- like you say, Patrick. She's introduced. She's uh, ethereally. Um, kind of beautiful woman but she is um kind of muttering to herself oh she's rehearsing what she's saying at the divorce hearing yeah Mm -hmm. but it's it's a it's an interesting way of introducing that character to see that you know she's uh uh, and she she doesn't really get on on much level footing throughout is it safe to say that she's the protagonist but she she does ghost through this film as in she's there she seems to be the the trigger for all the other characters, but she's not 
she's not terribly active outside of, oh, no. let's just go out to the country, but she's no plan. She's I, no goal r- that I can really see. And she just seems to sort of bounce between all the other characters. And I'd, I'd written a note, um, which we'll get into a little bit more probably when we, when we discuss the dynamics between the three, the three men and her. But you could tweak this film and it could be there's something about Mary. But instead, it's Mary's sort of just uh, a passenger in her own story. I think it's written like that. She's, she's written to kind of slip between them. She's written as somebody who's literally rootless completely. But, but when you're talking about her zest for life, I, I think that's relating to her empathy for the animals. And uh, and yeah. in that way, she 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 has life. Um, but yeah, there's that other side of it, like the dichotomy is that she's kind of haunted and, and troubled yeah. too. And I think, Gally, when you said the, the, the microcosm of, of being distracted by her and her beauty, I think there's a very deliberate, um, directorial, uh, decision it, near the end of the film when they are mustanging and she kicks off this, this stunning wide shot with her center fold and when she's l- screaming laments, uh, calling them liars and, uh, protesting against them i think that's a very deliberate powerful image there because it's not about you you cannot be distracted by beauty that this is a real moral dilemma Yeah, I was in two minds about that because because that is a brilliant directorial decision. But at the same time, she was kind of robbed in that moment of of that performance. Kind of, it's it's what's best for the film. I think what's best for the film isn't always what's best for the actor. So I think from from her perspective, she probably would have loved a close up, and I think a lot of people would have seen her as a as a, a better actress if they had seen that. But um, it, it works totally for the for the film. It's one of the best shots in it, I think, where it just goes super wide and she's just spiraling. Yeah, I I, I mm, found it quite heart stopping mm. that moment. Um, really stunning. The rage. Uh, well, maybe they shot it in there. close, yeah. and he just went with went with the wide. Who knows what they shot? But you know, I think they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Because we do get a lot of close up. Oh, there's those weird yeah. ones. Did you? The first time I saw it, there's the, a weird kind of a glaze over the the lens for some of it it happens two or three times yeah. and from a little bit of research yeah. i don't know if it's true but they they were trying to mask how hollowed out she looked because of rehab and uh, they were concerned about how she looked physically so they were actually um distorting right. the lens somehow and somebody commented it looked like the lens had the camera had tears in its eyes uh, at times it's two or three times when it mm. happens one when she's <laughs> Having breakfast with Gabe, I think. Um, sorry, Gable. And yeah. uh, there's another one later on when she's by by the car or by the truck when they're, when they're catching the horses. There's a lot of shots. And this is where I think she does a really wonderful job in the film or she's directed well. These, it, the way she listens to other characters, we always have a shot of her like just staring deeply into their eyes and listening. Mm. This, this is a big, meaningful, poetic film with a lot of its dialogue anyway. And I think it's really uh, uh, exacerbated by her 
and you understand that she's really taking in and like a sponge taking in everything everyone's saying uh there's a real beauty behind that how um her face just her face looking into other actors faces and listening yeah i don't know whether Eddie, mm. you got also at the end too when she's in the truck um when she's watching them yeah, rub the mustangs just without yes. words yeah. She's really, really great there. But to, to offset that, there's a, I was kind of blinded by her iconography to begin with. I'm not sure she's that great an actor. Like the delivery is peculiar at times. You can tell that she struggled with the lines and, um, by all accounts, like behind the scenes, including Kevin McCarthy, uh, like that husband on the steps scene. I think they did 17 takes yeah. of that, he says in the making of. And, uh, she really struggled with that one. They had to wire him up with the mic so Houston could hear what she was saying. It was really peculiar coverage. And, uh, yeah, she really struggled with it technically. And at times I feel like she's, she's kind of flashing back to things she's done in other movies. She's kind of resting on, uh, what she knows works. She, she flashes a smile or she, she does something with her eyes that, that she knows will work. Mm -hmm. But there's moments bet between those little, uh, iconic mm -hmm. things that she does where you can tell that she's struggling. So whether it's something as simple as trying to remember a line or whether she really has these deep personal problems in her life, it, it's one of those things that comes through. Do you think also, um, and Dublin, I'm mainly asking you here, she may have struggled with Miller's script and dialogue, which is quite big and wordy and poetic, some, somewhat existential at times as well. Do, do you think that could have like caused her problems as well? Very possibly. And it is, I mean, it is wordy and brawny and probably overwritten, a bit florid mm -hmm. and, and, and very much kind of like a, it's a, it's a film that's, that's grasping for being quite iconic, I think. Um, it's quite, it's quite contrite, isn't it? A lot of the time. Yeah. And I, I would say that, uh, because there's so many kind of like meta narratives, going on within the film where you've got the the story of the film then you've got the icons of the actors and then you've got the real lives of the actors and then you've got the the, the messy kind of interplay between all of these things and i think um throughout the whole film you've got a bunch of characters always trying to tell rosalind what she is even if what they are saying is supposed to be that oh no i actually understand you on a deeper level than the rest of them do they all want other things from her purse is probably kind of the least um calculated about it because i i just I, he seems to be just kind of like a sweet slightly naive kid who's just completely bowled over by her um whereas gay seems to be struggling with the fact that he is is you know it's attracted to her but it, that that would involve giving up a bit of himself and guido is kind of the most uh, uh difficult and erratic of them i think his character is is kind of fascinating carries a hint of, of genuine menace at times which which the others don't um, he's got quite a bit of desperation about him hasn't he yes well he's, uh, he's desperate and he's also as devlin said he's calculated you know yeah. he he's positioning her as some sort of salvation for him but without any connection they, he's literally just said because we've met and because mm -hmm. you can be a good fit for me yeah i can be a good fit for you and and he never ever takes her he never considers that she might not be into him, which is yeah. kind of strange, but sort of very, um, it's a, it's a great know, payoff when, he, when she shoots him down, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he immediately turns on her and, and starts throwing shade. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
like you don't even know this woman. You've literally yeah. just all gathered your your belongings and gone out. Uh, and and again, it kind of speaks to the film, isn't it, that they're searching for something. The words being put in all of these men's mouths are being put in their mouths by a man who is also yeah. in the script trying to do mm. the same thing to her in a wider sense, which is like he's writing her a role as a as a wife, as a partner, as an artist. He's trying to shape her career. He's trying to help kind of direct her into a certain type of performance or into a certain type of film. It's like it's just a kind of for a woman who seemed to basically spend her entire life under the constant scrutiny and ownership of men that it happened again mm-hmm. uh, as a last act is, is it kind of feeds into the sort of the, the real sadness under it. So whether that comes out in her performance, that the more that their marriage was falling apart, the probably the less motivated you'd be to try and say these men's words. Right. Tell me, Rosalind, I've been waiting. I'm going out of my mind with waiting. Come back with me. Give me a week, two weeks. Let me show you what I am. Tell me, Rosalind. Give me a reason and I'll stop it. There'll be hell to pay, but you give me a reason, I'll do it. Reason? You, a sensitive fellow. So sad for his wife. Grinding me about the bombs you dropped and the people you killed. You have to get something to be human. You never felt anything for anybody in your life. All you know is the sad words. You could blow up the world and all you would feel is sorry for yourself. He's, he's in the Eli Wallach uh, monologues that, that kind of where he chastises her. And, you know, I, I think that that's that's clear. Um, they said it was a Valentine, but it, it became a bit twisted as it went on like who knows what was re- rewritten and and like it started that they said that the beginning of the shoot and the beginning of the film started off like a honeymoon and he went from being like besotted with her to, to kind of seeing the disintegration of their marriage and but and she's not really innocent in this too apparently she was unfaithful during either during or, or the, the writing of the script so his insecurities are are coming through the other characters too mm. Well, and that, I guess that speaks to, cause I, I look at Clark Gable's character, Gay, as, as really being the, the, the thematic thrust. And one of the, one of the really impactful lines that I thought was when she says, well, how do you live? And his version at the beginning of the film, um, when he says like, well, you start by going to sleep, you get up when you feel like, you scratch yourself, you whistle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and I just thought, well, that's it. Like he is uh, at that point, he he sees life as this thing that is, it's out there. You can grab it. You just, you know, you do what you want. And then by the end of the film, he's talking about death and about how, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's natural and we're all gonna go. And and they're all they're, at that point they're struggling, aren't they? Especially when we have the, the 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 sort of the rallying of the the misfit horses. I mean, that's that entire sequence. I'm gonna say sequence because it's a scene. I guess, but it goes on. It must be the best part of a third of the film. So if you buy that he's changed at that point, if, if you, when you're talking about, um, uh, Gable's character, like the, the arc that he has, when he, he releases the, uh, the horse at the end, um, you know, if you believe that, that, that is, is coming from a, a real place, then he has a really great arc. It's almost as he's saying that he just wanted to prove that he could. 
and that at that point he was like, I'm not finished yet is what he was essentially doing. It wasn't done out of compassion. Right. And, and to redeem himself in her eyes too. I think, I think that, that line, Dev, um, when he says he won't be told what to do, you know, he's living. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's everything we know about him. You know, it's a really smart way of, of almost wrapping up his character within that and understanding his whole motive and, and who he is. And and his, and again, his star persona bleeding into the yeah. lines. I think yeah. um, she says, Oh, I didn't mean to disrespect you. And he's like, who do you think you've been talking to all this yeah, time? Yeah. Feels like Clark Gable but, literally stepping out of character. But the, the moment where he helps purse after he's fallen off the ball and she's hysterical and, and yeah. upset. And he's like, oh, I went and helped him. And she goes, you did, didn't you? You know, right. and he, I think he understands <laughs> that kind of allure to himself that being, being a man, uh, I, and at that, there's where the old Hollywood meets the new is, is him and her and their, their chemistry. I thought it was quite, quite cool at where he, he's always in control and he wants to remain in control of his mm. decisions in his life. But the, the, the bit, his Oscar clip, if you want, is where he loses that control and he's pissed and he's Looking screaming out for his yeah. kids. And he's kind of climbing, clamoring all over the car and falling off. It's, it's very, uh, Academy Award, um, bait, baiting, but he's, he's terrific in it though. It's, it's, and that's one of the best parts where he offsets, offsets his character. Mailer! Gaylord! Rosemary! Gaylord! 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 Here's your father! Gaylord! I know you hear me. Where you gone to? I told you'd be right back. You come here now. Don't worry, mister. You'll probably find him at home. Gaylord! You come here now. I know you hear me. Help me! I know you hear me. You come here now. Oh, Gaylord! Here's a question, guys. So we have three male characters. We have one female character. She does have um, her her uh, landlady, who's a friend, who is kind of like a glimpse into her future if she just carries on marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing. And she kind of falls off um, off the plot about halfway through the film. Once they get to Reno, pretty much, isn't it? She sort of introduces mm, Rosalind to Reno and then disappears. She, when she leaves, she precipitates the real change in the tone of the thing. You notice mm-hmm. she's out of the picture by the time Guido and Gay get extremely drunk and lose yeah. control. Did you see that um, Miller talked about that a little bit? He said that that was based on a real divorced woman whose husband would send her a rose once <laughs> a year. Mm. And, um, so I wondered like why she disappeared and what the relevance of, of her, you know, disappearing like that was. And it, she, it, it's kind of a sad, really another sad layer to it. She kind of confesses that her husband would never have stayed married to her because she lost a vacuum cleaner yep. or something like that. <laughs> and then she said that was really heartbreaking. Like someone has this opinion of themselves that no one's going to stay yeah. with them and they've resigned to that and they're not going to try and find a new partner. They've just, realized that no one's going to want to be with them that was another really Did sad she disappear when she's seen her divorced husband though is that when yeah he stood he stood with the new wife and, um, in the crowd and then, well, then yeah. he says i'm gonna have to chip off because i'm gonna have them stay at my place for a week <laughs> yeah that's it yeah 
<laughs> right. Yeah. I guess it, I mean, you could you could argue there's an element of commerce taken over from from personal feelings. I don't know, but she sort of you're right. It, it precipitates a a change in tone. But one of the things that I wanted to know is, outside of all of the the, the things going on out, you know, the context of the film and these these star personas, do we ever really believe that there is a a sort of a trio fighting for the affections of this one woman. Do we ever really believe that anyone other than gay is going to, is going to get Rosalind's attention? Because that was the bit that I thought they maybe could have played up because the one problem, not one of the problems I found with the film was that it, it almost becomes a documentary and I, it starts to lose a little bit of conflict within the dynamics between the three. Cause I never really believe despite all three of them being infatuated with her, that anyone other than gay is really going to have an opportunity. There's the scenes where I think uh, Purse says, can I have this dance and ask gay for permission? I was like, I don't really know why, what, cause it's being played as if, well, one of these three men is going to, is going to end up with, with Rosalind. But the film itself rallies against that by essentially making it clear that gay's always going to be with Rosalind. It's just how they're going to get there. It's interesting because the, the, the poster to the film, the synopsis, everywhere you read things about this film, it talks of a love triangle. It never really mentions Greedo or being the third man in it. And mm. I don't ever believe Greedo's ever going to get there, Gally. No, I don't. But, but with Purse, uh, Montgomery Clift, I, I, I did in moments think he was going to win her over with his more innocence. I think, I think you're right. I think Gay is concerned too that he might. I think they uh, get that way, especially there, there's a kind of change and shift where he's bandaged and on her lap and she's comforting mm-hmm. him and she talk, he talks about his father and stuff. I think they also leads her away at one point. He puts his arm around her and kind of shoves her out of the scene at one point where she's kind <laughs> yeah. of pity, pitying him after he's fallen off. Yeah. Off the, yeah. Off the ball, I think, so. I think there's a lovingness there, Gally, that could be, could be read and the, the gesture at the end where he frees the horses, you know, it's a big gesture for her to win her over affection. And he, he's kind of seen the wrong as well. Mm. I did mm. think they were going to set off into sunset together at the end. Yeah. I, I okay. think uh, he does. M- Montgomery Cliff kind of sticks to guy code for a while. He says something like, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to move in unless you'd mind. Yeah. And then he, <laughs> yeah. he, sort of, he goes, okay. yeah, well, I would mind. Yeah. He, he's kind of sticking to that for a while. But then when that there's a brilliant, just it's covered with two shots where he's in her lap. You just you just talked about mm, it a second ago, yeah. Patrick. And it's a really sim- simple uh, coverage, and that's one of my probably two favorite scenes in in the film. Yes, it's a lovely moment. How come you got such trust in your eyes? I do. Like you was just born. Oh no. Was you really crying for me before? You were hurt. Didn't anyone ever cry for you before? No, no stranger. Last April 12th, I was kicked so bad. I was out all day and all night. And uh, I was with my girlfriend and my two buddies. I hadn't seen her and I haven't seen them since. Montgomery Clift, you know, the context is key. Someone who was probably the best looking man in Hollywood for a decade has a, has a horrific car accident has surgery etc and it never really comes back from it and again you feel that bleeding into the performance a man who's battered uh been doing doing this for too long and it's kind of 
rudderless. I, I read a quote about him by famed acting teacher Robert Lewis that really upset me. It was, it described it as the longest suicide in history for Montgomery wow. Clift. That's something really, oh God, I don't know, it just that really upsets me, that phrase. There's there's a couple of things about Cliff. The, this idea of him getting back on a horse is apparently representative of him getting back on heroin because horse is slang for heroin. Oh, right. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, but like this idea that he's he's getting on the horse again to his own detriment so spectators can see him and take something out of that. Like it seems like Miller was channeling something very well very real uh, along with that matt as well he gets on the horse but then he gets on a bull as well after so it's oh exactly that there's yeah, an addiction uh representation within that as well right and my, my favorite moment in the film is a, is a cliffed moment it's like something i would definitely rip off if i was ever to to direct anything uh it's the way we meet him through that phone call they kind of pull it's up almost bizarre though matt this is where Matt is. Never seen anything like, like it. it could become the something about Mary. That scene is so <laughs> yeah. out of nowhere. Like he's you could do it in a comedy. Yeah. You could do it in a horror. You could do it in anything. It's so it's so clever to to have a one sided monologue where they sit there in a car and basically eavesdrop while he talks to his mother, and he wants to know if she's proud of him and the belt buckle that he's won, yeah. and you know everything about this guy mm-hmm. right off the bat. Uh, with minimum effort and just, uh, it's just a terrific way to introduce a character. It's so cool. The timing of sliding that door closed every time. Yeah. To, you know, when to mask it a bit. Yeah. But it only just dulls it a little bit. You can still hear it. I wanted to buy you a birthday present, but then he slides it back over to tell him about the, you know, the, the, the cool belt, belt buckle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that he didn't say hello to his, uh, what would probably be his stepfather yeah, or. Yeah. You, yeah. And we have the old adage, don't we, of, uh, show don't tell in, in filmmaking. Um, you know, don't tell us about these people, show us, uh, through action. And I guess this is where you have someone, despite being very drunk and sleepy, who's still a bit of a master. You know, this is John Huston, who's probably, I mean, arguably one of the strongest debut films ever. There's not many that are going to beat, um, the Maltese Falcon as a, as a debut film. And, and he knows what he's doing, right? I mean, some of it feels a bit like they're just grabbing shots. And then when, when you can see he's on it, he is crafting, composing. And I was, I was quite engaged. This is a very talky film, but the camera doesn't, it's not like moving. And cutting like Michael Bay to try and hold my attention. It's being done very subtly, but really quite engaging. Even when there are times, and I don't know if the, like for example, with Marilyn Monroe, where a performance is necessarily, um, chiming with me. Just the fact that where the camera sits and where he's, and the way he's, he's directing it, I feel like I'm in safe hands here and I'm getting, I'm getting plenty from the scene. There's a Michael Caine quote. Um, that was quite cool. It said, most directors don't know what they want. So they shoot everything they can think of. They use the camera like a machine gun and John, uh, Houston uses it like a sniper. He kind of knows what he needs and he only gets what he needs. He doesn't shoot coverage in a traditional way, partly because I think he was concerned that the studio can take things away from you. If you give them too many options, they can, uh, they can get in there and really change your movie. So I, I wasn't that aware of him. Um, obviously he's one of the big names, but I've only seen African Queen and, uh, I saw Maltese Falcon 
And I think I saw Treasure of the Sierra Madre a, a long time ago because Sam Raimi and Paul Thomas Anderson always go on about it being one of the <laughs> greatest films ever made. But um, yeah, it's kind of hard to get into some of those older ones, but uh, I found it easier to get into the misfits so it's not a bad place to start really if you if you want to get into houston yeah it's a um from what i heard that miller seemed to want this to be quite an epic and he he, that's why he wrote it out in the west and he wanted these big vistas and stuff and apparently um he found it a little confounding that houston wanted to cut in on so many close-ups um which is like an odd inversion of what you'd expect which is is because of the nature of the, the, the small cast and the limited locations outside of the, you know, the, the big blowout at the end with the, with the horse wrestling, uh, the majority of this could take place on stage, really. Yeah. And, and what, what better canvas than Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable and Montgomery Cliff's face? I mean, yeah, yeah I completely disagree. But then that com- that's coming from a filmmaker versus someone who writes for stage. Well, I think there's enough wides in it to have impact. And there's enough, there's, there's the close-ups still have effect too. Like one of the cool things about him as a director that I found was that he, he doesn't like to talk to the actors too much about motivation mm. once they've been cast. He casts the, the right people for the job. I think most great directors do this. They, you know, bad directors make a fuss over everything. I think you hire the people that can give you what you need and you communicate to them what you want. And then you have to just give people a, a certain amount of freedom, I think. And I think Houston's really good at that. There, there's a weird thing in the film though. I don't know whether you agree with this or if it's context of the time. I, when I was watching it, Dev, I, I struggled to get into accepting how accepting all the characters are. She accepts the invitation. She just, you know, gets into conversation with these men and they're, they're very full on conversations and come out to Reno with me, start dancing with me that she doesn't even know these people. It becomes a very intimate thing very quickly. I think, I think, yeah, naivety pretty much it seems to sum it up that, you know, every, lots of characters tell her that she just has this ridiculous, like trusting nature and they say it in, in various ways. Guido's way of saying it is typically kind of the most unpleasant, which is that he says she looks kind of dumb, you know, like, like Brett. And again, is that, is that Miller writing Monroe as Monroe, the persona or the person, you know, that was what she traded off, wasn't it? Being yeah. a bit of a ditzy dumb blonde. Being forced to hide any kind of intellect or any kind of curiosity and just giggle away. And, uh, she was much parodied for it. Um, there's even a, a, a parody of Marilyn Monroe in, um, uh, there's a play and a, and a film, uh, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, where, uh, Jane Mansfield plays a kind of Marilyn Monroe avatar. And it's a very unpleasant, um, uh, caricature. And Jane Mansfield herself kind of ended up being basically sold as a Marilyn Monroe caricature so it's yeah that, that I think that's that's very well, much the kind Hurst of tries to warn yeah. her a bit doesn't he? he says don't let them grind you up they grind up the women here but some don't mind and she's I mean she says that she does mind and uh there's that whole idea even the 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 words they use about grinding you up and grinding up the horses to make dog food it's all it's all very cleverly tied in i think that's that's all miller isn't it i think he gets all the credit for that yeah it's it it is wonderful in that regard that you can dissect this film and again this is why i was asking before um before offline and actually i'll ask now do we ever i doubt you do devlin because you picked it and patrick you've picked films that are older than this but do we ever have reservations about going back to these you know i say so called but you know when we read these books in virgin or a thousand and one movies 
how how easy difficult how how do you guys find going back to films that are you know, sub 50, 60 years old. Do, do you ever have reservations about it? I, I was going to pick an older film for my next pick in a few weeks time. But, um, as soon as you've done this, Dublin, I'm going to hold off for a while. But I, I spoke about it before my, a lot of my film education comes from my grandma and watching golden era, uh, mm. Hollywood and well, mainly musicals, um, in the fifties and sixties. So for me, it, I'm very intrigued by this era and there's still lots to see, uh, because they could be quite easily dismissed, Gally, which is maybe what you're getting at for, for modern cinema. And I, I loathe for that to happen. Well, like beyond the point, it's very hard to get into certain things, isn't it? But I have a, a problem with people saying, have you seen the new this or have you heard it? I'm looking for new music. It's like you haven't even heard everything. You think the best music and films ever made were made this year or last year? I mean, there's just not a chance. I mean, you have to go back through these things and you have to get around this idea of black and white being intrusive. Well, it's, it's interesting that he chose to be black and white in this one as well, Matt, because it's True, a yeah. colour era that we, we're coming into. Mm. Oh, exactly. This one felt very modern for me. The only yeah. one one thing that took me out a little bit was some of the the booming score. I yes. can't remember the, the, yeah, the score doesn't always nail what's going on. I think there's something a lot more kind of strange and 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 jagged going on on screen. And I think they could have done so much more with the plane and the horses that, than that kind of cacophony. It, it was it was too too much going on. Uh, and yeah. The visuals are really really great, but I think it's a product of its time too. It, it's 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 really clever and ahead of its time in certain ways. But there's a few things tying it to to sixty one. Mm. I found the choice of going black and white an interesting one because one of the things that that the one of the metaphors going through the film is the struggle, right? And when they're in the Nevada desert or the Reno desert, you know, we can't fully appreciate the beating sun and just how desolate it is in black and white. But then I found that to be quite purposeful and, and it kind of set the mood which is there is nothing to be celebrated in this desolate land like there is because normally we associate sunshine you know you think about lawrence of arabia like a year later and the vistas and just you going oh man i'd love to visit there even though it's just sand dunes and big large canvases whereas in this it's like houston went no black and white that's the that's the right tone for this story. I was thinking about Lean a lot, like when I was watching it, like what David Lean would have done. I just I think they did a better job than he he would have, and he's he's amazing photographically. But I think they they really grounded this one a, a bit it's, better. It's a cinematographer um, from Ben Hur, is it? It's uh, oh, it's Russell. Really? Um, Did you use Spartacus? Yeah, as well? Spartacus. Spartacus. I meant I meant Spartacus. Sorry. Touch of Evil and uh, Galley. Uh, I actually screenshotted this from his IMDb. Unfortunately, my, my computer is frozen a little. Here we go. Uh, I remember me and you gals talking about Russell May because we watched an episode of Columbo that had some especially shitty cinematography. <laughs> we did. <laughs> it was him. And it was like the entire, uh, shadow of the camera, the, the map box, all of the, the camera operator were all a big, completely perfect shadow right on Columbo's jacket. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, this is all very meta. Was, was he making a comment about? No, I think he just, I think, it, I think his eye had gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was only 10 years later. 
but he was he was really getting on because he I mean he was work with Douglas Sirk he shot like bringing a baby he was you know he was a great it's the same with the guy who the cinematographer for Jaws 2 with the worst rack photo <laughs> that we've ever <laughs> <Yeah>. seen um, <laughs> but is from an Oscar winner of of some of the greats uh, it's just yeah. when the eye goes the eye goes and they didn't have you know uh, instant feedback monitors back then it's it was true, just yeah. it was through the yeah. lens you didn't have the time as well. I mean, you know, but I remember that, that episode being especially shit and everything was like shot so wide that you could see the top of the flat and then you could look at the fucking stage points above. We need to find out which episode that was and put it in the show. Well, notes and people it, can was, watch it. it wasn't it was another... because that one looks great. So it was either, uh, lady in waiting or suitable for framing. I think it's okay. lady in waiting because suitable for framing. I think there there was right. another um, black and white film that I found it quite easy to get into and it was that plays very modern was uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I, I drew a few parallels between that and this because it's very theatrical uh, and play, play-like. And uh, the director's hand, you can feel it at work when the photography is really good, but um, it, it doesn't feel too dated at all. And again, that's another choice to use black and white rather than being a, a necessity. I think that's like 65 or something. I don't really It's know. also uh, like these grand movie stars kind of stripping away the layers and showing exactly. you. Exactly. They're pretty yeah. fucked up. Yeah. yeah. That's a double bill. That's not a bad double bill. I think when you watch films from, from that era as well, uh, I think you could really surprise a modern audience into how technical they can be mm. and how visual and how modern some of the dialogue can be like, uh, the misfits for the dialogue, I'd say. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's something like sunset Boulevard, which I adore, which has the, the, um, narrative from beyond, which was a very groundbreaking, uh, thing at the time. Uh, so black and white cinema for me, Gally, is, is very, well, not just black and white cinema, because you've got the artist recently, which actually has a similar theme to this. Um, but uh, 40s, 50s cinema I, is very important to me. And I think very important for anyone who wants to educate themselves in film, film history, filmmaking and, and storytelling. It colors, it colors your, your, your opinions of new affair when you can go back and see where an influence or, Something that has inspired. I always, I always think about, and this is not to dog on, um, on the, the superhero craze, but I always look at like something like The Winter Soldier and everyone's like, Oh, it's such a great film. What an amazing Captain America. So great. So like, go watch, yeah. Go back and watch. Well, go back in further. Go back and watch the Mancurian candidate and then mm-hmm, you yeah. will see where the evolution to get to that stage is. They are not inventing anything new. They are simply as, as all things are. Uh, being influenced and, and twisting it and making it uh, accessible to a modern audience. But I always find it really frustrating. And I found this to be a real palate clean- cleanser because I just watched Bad Boys for Life <laughs> the day before. <laughs> like I say, modern audiences that might not want to give this a chance because it's from the 60s. Um, yeah, I don't think you know what you're missing out on. You should really go back and... and- Darby O'Gill? Maybe yeah. not Darby O'Gill though. <laughs> did you see the old lady? Seven Brides of Seven Brothers. Yes, we did see. We did can see. We the talk about that scene. Yeah, because Estelle <laughs> Winwood just randomly appears with a cup, collecting money for the church. Why the? She fuck? collects more than she's given as well. She- <laughs> yeah. Why? Why was she dubbed, or, or is that her voice? No, that's her voice. That's it's from Darby O'Gill. Yeah. Because in Darby O'Gill, she's like, you need to find a man. Otherwise, you'll be on the the shelf forever. 
And in wow. this, it's, uh, you know, save the clock tower. It's brilliant. <laughs> does she do? Does she do an Irish accent in Derby Girl? I can't remember. She does. Uh, but it's dreadful, she, but it's great. I think they, I think they, they toned it way, way, way down, right? Yeah. Didn't yeah. I think so. She's the, the, no, the nosy, the nosy neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's two films with her in it now, which is. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. She's well like, she's added to the, uh, to the all stars list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she'll make it to the Breck and Meyer list. I don't think she, I, I don't know if she's, she made it to the nineties, but yeah. Well, she got you, great. she got you racking your brain though, didn't she? I thought she was in Hook for some reason. I was oh, like, where do I know this woman from? Dead by Hook. <laughs> she was dead by Hook. This scene in the bar, just when they about to go to the rodeo, yeah. where Devlin, I start to question how these people were, in fact, misfits. Right. So you got the Mustangs as misfits, and for metaphor, like the title, you think the people are misfits as well. But I, I didn't read how they were misfits much at all in this thing uh, said it for me they they fit in they have a laugh with people they are like everyone else and trying to find their way in the world and i yeah. didn't I, I felt like that was kind of a flaw with the title in a way or the characters ah but you were you were you trying to reduce it down to those characters or was arthur miller referring to this entire subset of people that live their lives like this in the bar that's, that's a good point <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's singling them out, is he? He's talking generally. More, okay. More perhaps. I mean, I'm. Yeah, I'm with you, Patrick. I'm. I don't see them as being particularly. Because they're outcast. all cowboys in the bar, aren't they? They've all got the hats. They're apart all going from to the, apart from the church lady. <laughs> apart from the church lady who's saving for the clock tower. Yeah, there's no one else is uh, <laughs> is a cow. And, and the kid, but the kid is. You know, he's already on. The kid the looks fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> did Miller, did Miller just like give him a, maybe the kid asked for some Houston water. Got in, pissed, in really, yeah. 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 <laughs> Houston said, um, here kid, uh, this is just a bit of Coke, a little bit of rum in it. Well, isn't Houston in the film as an extra at a blackjack table? As I heard well? that, but I didn't spot him. Me neither. I tried to find it. But yeah. the scene, like, I was trying to figure out how she's making that much money when she's only supposed to hit the ball 10 times. Well, well she's she gambling. Mm. She, oh, right, so it's just a re, right, fine, fine. And then, well, the spanking. I wanted to talk about the spanking because I found it odd that she didn't react to it. But then, of course, we she's are busy. talking about. Well, she's <laughs> busy, isn't she? She's ah. concentrating. Yeah, and then, not going to let him win it. These men that are enamored by her, they're protecting her, so fine. Mm. I kind of wanted her to. Well, I, I wanted, um, Gay to do something could, about it. I wanted him yeah, to be yeah. physical with him because he, you know, I, I wanted him to kind of prove how he's much the he, one, right? he liked it. Yeah. If he's the one, he's, he should be the one protecting her, but it, it's Clift and, uh, um, Eli kicks off first. It, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's the one. But, but Matt, for all her, uh, protestation about, uh, cruelty to animals and you know the rabbit when he's eating the lettuce and that these guys set in their old ways and stuff i i really think they missed a beat with rosalind not you think she should have reacted her rights there well, well maybe this this guy if this guy distracts her to a degree where he fucks up what she's trying to do with the bet and then she gets angry at him that would be a nice beat for yeah. her that would be or maybe she thought it was gabe who was spanking her ass and she liked it. <laughs> yeah. But maybe again, Patrick, maybe this is, this is a bit of 
life imitating art, imitating life. Maybe Miller sure. doesn't want to give her that moment of triumph because he's tr- at this point in their marriage. I don't know when they shot that scene, but maybe, okay. maybe it was a case of, you know what? This is you. People gawking at you, grabbing you. You are accessible to them and you don't even notice how you're being used. I don't know. There's, I may be just reading into it, but that's, no, the, that's a good reading. I know what you mean. There was yeah, a moment. Maybe. There was a, you're right. There was a lack of, um, she had Proactive, no real authority uh, yeah. or yeah, anything to, she, yeah. she's literally. Cause she has a lot about her yeah. in the film and her character does. And like we, we spoke about her big moment when she calls them liars and screams at them. And I, or maybe it lessens that thought, if she reacts too soon, maybe it lessens yeah, when she does maybe explode. It's, at the it's end. a developmental thing as well. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Right. We had a, we set ourselves a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge listeners, uh, mainly to help you. If you've never seen the film kind of, if we haven't hammered home the point where these stars were in their careers, we, we decided to do a bit of dream casting. So we'll go around the table and we'll start with you, Devlin. So who in 2021, not necessarily with the same personal strife in their own, in their own lives, but who would you cast as the misfits? Uh, I actually really struggled with this largely because, uh, as I'm sure this will probably end up point now. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> you, don't know any, you don't know any modern actors? <laughs> I don't know actors anymore. And, and also like the, the, the kind of the, the overwhelming star wattage that was involved here doesn't really have a modern day analog. Mm. Really, especially in this kind of like, basically. You're suggesting that the Chris's are not as famous as Clark yeah. Gable? Various Chris's. Sorry, Chris Devlin. <laughs> I'm a lesser Chris. Uh, there's a uh, there's a thing now whereby the, what Marilyn Monroe was doing, which is like stripping away a certain amount of her kind of mystique, although pointedly not all of it. She still looks absolutely stunning throughout the film. Whereas you know these days it seems that if you want to be taken seriously as an actress, as a very attractive actress, you have to massive air quotes rough yourself up for a role so you know charlie's mm-hmm. the one, same thing in monster and mm. uh, and uh who's the i'm terrible with names of anyone born after 1970 <laughs> <laughs> who's in the wolf of wall street because she did the run where margot robbie when she uh when she smashed that woman's leg up with a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah yeah she made herself look slightly less attractive and that was the and, key uh, there, there wasn't really anyone I could think of that was that kind of uh, ethereal and strange. So the, the closest I could come up with was um, Audrey Tattoo. Just cause it's like, yeah. She's very pretty. Uh, she is, I guess, has a, a, an air of kind of, I get horrible phrase, but like exoticism because, you know, she's only really known to English speaking audiences. So French films and Amelie yeah. was like, she was really kind of above. She's almost like a real life pixie in that. So to see her kind of, you know, go through something a bit uh, kind of damaging and, 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 you know, see somebody kind of later in life who's still carrying a reputation of somebody who's essentially a bit of a manic pixie dream girl, I thought might be interesting. Mm-hmm. Is, is, it, is a foreigner in America as a misfit that way? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that would add a, a kind of a layer to it as well. And, that, you know, no, that's, that's a fair no. shout. Is it, is it bad that I, the last film I saw Audrey Tattoo in was her chasing Tom Hanks's <laughs> uh, uh, in the, the Venture Code? I've not seen her in anything. I know. That's what I mean. She's not really been around for a while. So it probably isn't, 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 uh, uh, super helpful. But, um, uh, so that, uh, uh, gay, you need like a, a real icon. There's not so many left. 
Um, who, who have you gone for? Uh, friend of the show, I'm going oh, Costner. Oh, oh, yes. Strong uh, choice. I almost went Costner. I almost, but I wait, thought he's still, he's still living. He's still, he yeah. can still come back. I was um, Costner yeah. until about, um, 7 p.m. tonight. And then no, I, no, I flipped it. You were Costner until about the second Jack Daniels and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I flipped last minute. But yeah, Costner's uh, yeah. a great shout. <laughs> We've yeah. always got one, you know, Kastner, he's, he's got that kind of stoicism. He's a, he's a very handsome guy. He's, he's a very famous man. And we, we, we said a couple of times that we need a, a, a Kevin, what do they call it? Kevin? I didn't. Kevin I Edmonds? I don't know how they say it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we know I went a little off track and I was like, I needed somebody who could be like kind of a little charming, but also kind of a bit terrifying. I maybe went a little too terrifying. Uh, Stephen Graham. Oh, um, yeah, Good maybe choice. a little scary. Although, you know, in, in, he's, he's got a kind of terrifying magnetic charm. Yeah, I can like, see that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I can see so that. that's the purse, yeah? Uh, no, he's my Guido. I was going to say he's more Guido. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I would be, I uh, I don't think he's going to have trouble with the accent, but I think if we ADR him, uh, he can yes. have a few Brilliant. runs in it. No, no, no. I love him, but I don't, I don't buy his accent in any of the American stuff he's done. So. Have you seen Boardwalk Empire? He's great as, uh, Capone. My purse, I needed somebody who, and I don't think my purse has has nailed it, but I just thought of like uh, a young promising actor who went on to unfortunately fuck himself up and, uh, but one who can actually act, uh, Shia LaBeouf. Good shout. shout. He's also, he's willing to kind of, you know, he's yanking his teeth out to be in that stupid tank movie. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to go method. If he needs to break his nose to fall. Yeah, well, I'll I'll break it for him, so it's fine. (gasps) (gasps) He has recently been cancelled, so that's okay, Gally, you can say that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I can punch him without (laughs) without being chased. Well, I don't know if he's been cancelled, but there's some abuse allegations. uh, Do you have an Isabel, Devlin? Uh, I didn't realize we were casting the whole film. I didn't didn't cast an Isabel. Um, No, I didn't. I got got one. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We we'll go with yours. Julie Dench. Julie Walters. <laughs> oh yeah, Julie Walters is a good one. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> go on then, Patrick, but be quicker than Devlin. He seems to drag his heels. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. All right. So I'll go. I'll go reverse. I go my Guido first. Who I'm going a little bit. Uh, I, I toyed between a few couple here, but I'm going with someone. Um, uh, Emery Cohen. Someone a bit younger. He was Tony in Brooklyn and he was, he was brilliant in a place beyond the pines. I think he's a fantastic young actor. Uh, and I think he would have that darker edge for that. I, I toyed with BJ Novak for that as well, but, um, oh. Henry Cohen got it. Um, for Purse, uh, kind of someone who can portray a bit of innocence as well as charm as well. I'm going wacky in Phoenix. Me too. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Oh, that, Matt. Yeah. It's a very good shout. Fantastic. It's a great shout. Yeah. Wacky fit. Um, and then for Roz, I'm going Elizabeth Debicki. Ooh. Uh, if you familiar with her, I think she's super striking. She, she's, she's recently been in Tenet. Uh, I actually got to work with her on Man from Uncle and on Macbeth. Um, she's quite tall, blonde, like stunning, beautiful actress. Who I think could really show something in this role. Um, so yeah, Elizabeth Debecki there. And my gay is Viggo Mortensen. 
Oh, Beaker. I had, uh, he was in my list as well, but, um, he got pipped, but that's a mm. great shout. Yeah. I almost went Mel Gibson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just one, one last hurrah for Mel. Bearded, yeah. just yelling at the moon. So yeah. Matt, you got the same, we got the same, uh, yeah. uh, purse. What, what else do you have? Uh, well, my first instinct for gay was Daniel Day Lewis, but as he's retired, I, I immediately shelved that. And then I was Costner oh, I think until if you're about... directing, Matt, he'll come back out. He's Arthur Miller's son-in-law, right? Oh, Daniel Gay-Lewis. Well, there you go. That's how, that's um, how we get him. Uh, so, yeah. So then Costner would, was in until about 7 p.m. And then I flipped to, to Clooney. Uh, oh, no, Matt, you've taken my spot. Well, <laughs> if it was my gay. Clooney, it's just the look. Um, I think yeah, Clooney he's can a, he's the He's the only one, right? He's the only one who carries yeah. that golden era presence i think so you can do the little uh pencil mustache too if you want and That's true. and then uh my uh my my roslyn is directly linked to to gay because th- there's so many combos that you can do but one only works with the other one so uh if if i've got costner or clooney uh the, the three names i came up with was scarjo Anne hathaway and jennifer lawrence and the only mm. one of the three that has the fragility and that would not look weird snogging Costner or Clooney is probably Anne. So I'm going to go Anne Hathaway for my Roslyn. Good chair. Okay. And She's definitely um, scattergun enough for it. Yeah. Her. And then uh, Guido, I'm going to go with Walton Goggins, who you know oh, yeah. as the uh, the Sheriff of Red Rock in uh, The Hateful <laughs> Or is he? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was mine. Oh, happy days. Go on, Gally. Right, what well, is, so um, you have, uh, oh, you've got Clooney for gay. So I've got Clooney as gay. Were there any, uh, uh were there any other left field choices? No, no, not left field. I had Clooney, Costner. Um, at one point, just because of the, the desperation to be relevant was Will Smith, but I pulled that out, uh, <laughs> in the end. Um, so I've gone, yeah, I've gone Wise. for George Clooney. Um, so my Guido is Michael Shannon. Uh-huh. Or Michael Fassbender <laughs> decided to go for the Michaels because yeah. you know that you can't really trust them. But I do think Shannon <laughs> can do sweet before he goes mental and uh, Fassbender can do a sort of Maleficent sort of role where he, you think you can sort of err on the side of trustworthy, but you know, he's going to, he's going to be self-serving. So they're my two Guidos. My purse, and this is purely just celebrity gossip, is Ben Affleck. Because I think he's in the, he's in that, uh, Montgomery yeah. Cliff stage of his career where, where he drops the coffee you know, in that, in that meme. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know if you've seen the pictures over the Christmas period, but he's not looking in particularly great shape, no. but I think he's due a comeback and he could do it by doing a sweet role that kind of reminds you why Ben Affleck was a thing and not just because he was, you know, Batman for two minutes. Agreed. I rate so, Affleck. Yeah. Good shout. Uh, and mm. my Rosalind, Rosalind is the hardest one. Monroe is the hardest one because mm. as we've rightfully said, there isn't really anybody who I don't think has got the gravitas or the iconography or just that kind of, yeah, that aura. Um, but I, it was Jennifer Lawrence was up there because I think she could, she's not to say she's damaged goods because that's really passing aspersions, but she's somebody who's kind of had a lot of highs and is in that lower ebb of a career and I think she could probably access it and be a certainly she'd do a better job than Marilyn Monroe in the more dramatic uh, more dramatic mm-hmm. beats. Um and you said Jennifer and I thought you were gonna say it and it was only because I had Clooney. I was just saying Jen- 
put put Jennifer Lopez in there as uh, as Rosalind. Yeah. I think. Not Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez. Not Jennifer Coolidge. No. <laughs> um, what would Jennifer Coolidge be like? Uh, how old are you, George? <laughs> Just the way I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's my that's my dream casting. I didn't go for Your Jennifer uh, Lopez, Will Smith, Misfits. <laughs> well, it's a good thing I'm not a casting director, but I think I should be. I think I would make an interesting. Can Michael too. Shannon in there just doing mental? Michael shit. Shannon. <laughs> Michael Shannon is the ex uh, war war vet pilot who you know is going to fucking turn. So yeah, but you know you can have one scene where he's going to absolutely blow everyone off the screen. So that's yeah. why you have Michael Shannon. Yeah. There's no other reason. Right. Well, team, should we do our final thoughts? On The Misfits, we'll start with you, Matt. Uh, Dev picks really interesting, challenging films, I think. And some of them tend to nudge me slightly out of my comfort zone. But I'm I'm quite grateful. Uh, even, even when we're not entirely on the same page at first, I, uh, you know, at first I was like, oh, God, he's done it again. You know, it's a depressing, <laughs> it's a depressed fest. But I, I slowly <laughs> kind of digested it. And it was a really rewarding watch. Um, and I think most other people will have that experience. Like if not immediately, then it's going to be a lingering thing that, that you get a lot of, you get a lot out of. Um, that the, there was the initial frustration of, of being shown a film that was unrelentingly sad. Um, but it kind of, it, it's good for me. You know, I didn't, I, I would have just watched Armageddon again and killed my final brain cell. So you, you're like that someone force feeding me to eat my greens or something when it comes to, to film stuff. So. Thanks to Dev. Um, but the quality of the film aside, I think it's historically relevant. When we're talking about revisiting black and white films and old films, um, this one's a really important one. It heralded the deaths of two and then later three of its stars. And it has all kinds of deathly connotations. And it, it feels like you're watching ghosts. It's really interesting. Um, the, the act of its creation seemed to usher in more bad things than good things. Uh, but you, like we've said before, you can't really blame a film for the deaths. It's not a cursed film or anything like that. It's, it's become this, this document and a really important document. Uh, even though it has this kind of low hanging doom over it. Like we've mentioned the crow and the, the similarities there. Um, uh, without the context of, of everything that happened outside of it, I don't think it's a weak film, but it, it, it does add to it. It's the same as The Crow, I think. It wouldn't be forgotten about, but I, I don't know if it would be a classic. Um, the, the It was very meta. Um, you know, Miller's metaphors and, and the knowledge of what happened to its stars, it kind of transcends everything. Um, and it, it turns the film into something greater and more important than it would have otherwise been. Um, I don't, as far as it being like a, a character study, it deals with four people. So it's more of like a, a quadriptic of like a portrait rather than like a big character study. Uh, but I do think it's a fitting way to remember all of the, the actors involved. It reminded me of when Philip Seymour Hoffman died and somebody said, uh, that it was a surprise. And then someone else said that it, there was pain in every frame. And when you look back at his films, you can, you can see it, even the comedic ones. Um, it, it, it there was always pain in every frame. And I think in this film, there's, there's kind of sadness in every frame. It's just sad as hell, really. Uh, and it is a difficult watch at times, but, um, it kind of, it's a terrific film, but it, 
it has the ability to drag you down with it if you're not careful. So you have to perhaps watch it at the right time. Um, th- there's kind of a teasing like morbidity about it. Um, that, that might be enough to drag people in knowing some of the stories behind the film, but uh, the quality of the film, it, it's good enough to keep you once, once you've been, uh, kind of grabbed by that. Uh, and I think a lot of stars had to align for this one to get made the way it got made. And I think we're really lucky that it exists and as a purely as a document of sixties Hollywood stardom and like the immortalization of these people at, at this time in their lives. Um, it's, it's a fitting way to remember them. And I can, I can see why others would, would revisit it more often than I probably will, but like just to spend time with these people. But, um, yeah, I'll thank Devlin for a, for a really interesting recommend. And I'm glad I finally saw it after all these years of you, uh, uh recommending it. So yeah, I'll pass it over to, uh, Patrick next. What did you think? Like most things when, when you're younger, I wish I paid attention more. I kind of regret maybe not taking it seriously enough or just watching it for the sake of watching because there's um it was I, I was moved by this film uh that there was something about watching it considering the actors maybe have a sense of their own mortality in it that that really really resonated and um really quite got me uh in a fascination point of view in a in an interest and in a almost a, a a morbid romantic view of it that it's kind of this lost era of people and the the, the sad feeling that I got that nothing lasts forever in a, in a, in a way and I kind of wish it would um but when I was watching it I I tried to figure out what what it was to start with you know in the first third um I, I said I was a bit jarred by how open they were to each other um uh it's very intimate very quickly but between them that I had to work out and to, to understand. And I got that more with the playwright and understanding it from um, the whole story point of view at the end. Cause at the end of the film, I'm, we've said it before, going to be like joking about wow them in the end, uh, one of our favorite quotes. And I really was, I was really wowed at the end by the the metaphor, the meaning, the the striking image of Monroe that I'll probably never forget, screaming uh, blue murder at them, and uh, almost riding away into the sunset in the distance after some beautiful photography and wrangling with each other, wrangling with horses, wrangling with life and existentialism and all of this that I I did feel kind of well into it, it's a poetic film sometimes i think there's some very big sweeping statements for the sake of it and it's quite contrite in in the dialogue but when you've got someone like clark gable that that's giving it here and i kind of agree with him that it's one of his finer performances because he's quite magic in a lot of it um and i found it quite modern for its time which is great and, and John Houston, there's problems and everything. You can see his eye here. You can see his mastery and his direction. And I think that there's a reason there to watch it apart from the three leads that had, had, um, uh, such a reputation and, and pro- um, problems at the time. Houston's direction certainly is wowed here. The, the photography, um, as well. 
from Matty. Um, it, ha- it, it sits with me better now, Dublin, than when I was watching it. I think it was a bit of a mess when I was watching it, or I felt it was that way, and some of it was uh, a little all over the place at times. I got lost in the middle, or, or I threatened to be. Um, you know, at the rodeos, there's some quite chaos and deep feelings and sweeping statements and like grandiose themes, but, um, I was struggling to understand how they were misfits, like I said, but it, it definitely came together for me. Um, and thank you for making me take it seriously, making me watch it properly, um, feeding me my greens as on the same plate as Matt's. Uh, I'd like to end with your, thoughts and feelings Devlin so I'll, I'll, I'll pass it on to Gally now yeah well I think there's not much more I can add from uh, from Matt and Patrick other than my own personal experiences with it which is on the first watch I was uh, pretty angry at Devlin uh, for picking another film that I was not particularly am- enamoured with um, but as I sat down to watch it a second time and I knew that um, and I'd done a bit of research which I think normally I would say you always need to meet you should always meet a film at face value and you shouldn't need to have to read anything about it or understand, you know, the film itself should speak for itself. But actually in this case, um, the prophetic nature, the tragedy that um, besets all of these, um, well, three of the the four leads and the context surrounding it and where they were in their careers really does inform you when you're watching it. So for, you know, I, I I'll plead those listeners that have managed to get this far who might not have ever seen the film, but are enjoying listening to us discuss it, that hopefully us discussing it will mean that when you go to watch the film, you might have a similar experience. Because the first time I saw it, I was wondering, where's the conflict? Where's the structure? Why are things not happening when they should be happening? Why is this dynamic between these characters what this isn't a love triangle this is a clean uh man and woman and two hangers on um but then the second time with all of that context um i found it to be deeply deeply fascinating and really interesting to say i was entertained there's varying degrees of entertainment i wasn't entertained like i might have been when i watched bad boys for life um which was very different um but i was i was i found it to be a real insight into <laughs> you've just compared the misfits to bad boys uh, <laughs> only on this podcast it's because i watched it the day before only only on this very very important critical podcast <laughs> would we ever compare the misfits to bad boys for life and bloated lawrence no i'm a, I'm, I'm kidding of course um but the um no what I, what i found what i found really fascinating was that it, it I, I there were there was there was flesh that was being put on the bones of people that I only knew from posters and from famous quotes. And I, and I found that to be far more interesting than the basic mechanics of the story and how we get from A to B, which is normally my thing. I'm a bit of a structure nerd. This film doesn't really have any structure. It sort of meanders, but that that's kind of the point. And, um, and I enjoyed it for that. So just like Matt and Patrick, I'll thank you, Devlin, because not only did I get my greens, but I also got a bit of gravy and a bit of meat. So <laughs> all was, over my of, sandwiches. I, honestly, <laughs> all over it, yeah, all over my sandwiches. So, yeah, it was uh, – honestly, I I really enjoyed it. But it but it took me the second watch because the first watch I was 
cursing you. I was like, we're backing all the real girls again. He's done it again. Absolutely. <laughs> no, bad. Not I, getting the I got it first time round. Uh, yeah, so go on, Devlin. Finish, finish um, us off. <laughs> <laughs> finish those greens. Well, I'm, uh, I'm just very glad that you guys seem to, to like it, mm. to be honest. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, we don't do these things to, to try and, you know, murk each other. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be as much fun. It's, it's, um, I guess this sort of sat, sat with me for a really long time and I've, and I, I've kind of gone back to it a few times and it's great that it's, that basically you guys met it largely the same way I did, which mm-hmm. is that, um, it is a remarkably modern film, which is a, a strange thing to kind of say about it, but, um, but, but I think it is, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's strange and it's jagged and it is, yes, very sad in a way that perhaps even the kind of earlier melodramas, which were kind of freighted with, with, with misery rather than sadness didn't really have, um, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's ahead of its time because it's, it, what is fascinating is that it exists exactly when it does. It's at the fraying ends of the golden age and heading towards this uncertain future. It's not quite settling on being either of those things. And it's kind of, like you said, Patrick, it is probably a little overwritten, but, uh, uh, very heady. Um, and it kind of jumbles these, these mega stars, these kind of fading stars, has beens, fancy new method actors. Um, we should probably point out that of, of the, of the tragedies befalling all of the cast, Eli Wallach went on to just be a lovely old man for a really long time. He lived in well into his nineties, right? And, but yeah, it is, it is palpably sad. And Clark Gable's character arc and his really impeccable performance is the anchor for the whole thing. And Eli Wallach's kind of shiftiness and temper give it this, this real charge. It's, it's, it doesn't allow you to settle into the film so much. And, um, Montgomery Clift's sincerity is just kind of heartbreaking. He has this like naivety and it's, he's just, he's outgrown his naivety. You can't be that naive when you're approaching 40. And it was, uh, what I liked was that his, his performance early on when he's kind of, uh, when he's punch drunk and he's, and he's stumbling around and I got this uncomfortable idea that perhaps he really was in that, that bad estate and they really were just kind of pointing him onto a set and having him vaguely approximate lines, but there's a real performance in there that I think when we talk about the, the, the tragedies going on behind the scenes and with the real people, I think it's, it's the other risk on, on the, on the other end of the spectrum is that it, it might eradicate the fact that they are actually doing very good work. They're doing very good work under very strange circumstances and strange personal circumstances, but the shift in his tone of his performance to the, the sort of the second day when he's completely resigned to realizing that this Mustanging and this lifestyle that they've, that they've fallen into is just, is just not, is, is causing him a lot of, of, of pain and anguish. And it's written across his face. And it's the same with Marilyn Monroe, which is, she, she is like a, it's, it's very strange. It's like a, I think maybe you said it, Matt, and it's hard to, it, it sounds super morbid to say, but she's kind of like a ghost floating through the film. Like she never quite get a grasp on her. And so it just gives the whole thing this, this real kind of, it's, uh, it's kind of chaotic. These chaotic fingerprints, I think I find them really compelling. Uh, that like maybe the turmoil forces people to turn on into themselves and into their impulses and, uh, maybe become a little more instinctive. So you, you know, uh, but yeah, we, we won't see a film like this again. 
and there's not really a film that's very much like it from the time it's kind of the myth making in the this curtain of mystique lying in tatters and glamour and anti-glamour combining so you've these really indelible images you're left with um which yeah like they've they've stuck around in my brain so um, yeah if if you're a fan of of the medium of films and you find the, the medium itself interesting and you have interest in how films are put together and why and by whom and the way that life and art can kind of combine and intertwine and the the messy realities of stardom can end up kind of there it's it really is it's one to wallow in and you're right it's not a, it's not you're not going to sell it as a cracking night in but I think if, um, no, sadly, there are only two films. Bad boy yeah. life and hook, uh, the only that have ever been made. But, you know, there's, there's something about the way it contains this genuine, like, hostility and anguish at the same time. And it's kind of streaked with these messy emotions of later life. Well, Devlin, I mean, you've done a, I hope you can find yourself a job in marketing. So where, where can our listeners this Friday night with their popcorn, where can yeah, they find the misfits? Fire up misfits. <laughs> get on the, get on a, get a little WhatsApp group going with your mates so you can live, so you can live tweet it or whatever. I don't know. Um, there are, uh, there is a Blu-ray available, but it's extremely expensive, but it's very good. Uh, the, the transfer is very good. There is nothing else on the Blu-ray. Uh, there is a DVD which is floating around, which you can probably buy secondhand for a pound. Uh, it's available to rent, I believe, on Amazon Prime and probably yeah, it is, yeah. But certainly on yeah. Amazon Prime, it's a film that is uh, uh, relatively readily available. Uh, there's also, as Matt pointed out, a couple of very good documentary making offs on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I got a on DVD for, on eBay for a couple of quid. Yeah, yeah. The um. The, the DVD and the, and the Blu-ray are essentially the same thing, which is to say there's nothing but a trailer, although it is a very strange trailer. There it is. We move on to Matt, your choice. I always get very excited because, because Matt goes for big mm. most of the time. <laughs> so, um, have you, have you, have you done some counter programming or are we going to stay in the mire? Well, this has changed. Uh, I had four in front of me and Devlin has inspired me a little bit here so I, I look back at my official non-consensus picks so far and they've all been pretty much genre-based sci-fi actioners or creature horrors so i thought i'd attempt to show another side to my cinematic taste and set the water worlds and demolition mans and <laughs> aliens aside to explore something a bit more mature and another string to matt's bow if you if you like philanthropy so um <laughs> so uh this is my podcast choice. There are many like it, but this one is mine. <laughs> oh. Uh, we oh. are going to be discussing Stanley Kubrick's 1987 Vietnam War film, Full Metal Jacket. Oh my God. Have we decided in 2021 that we're going to be a real podcast? Is this what we've done? Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeding you your greens. You're getting more. Tackling the Kubrick. I think we've been avoiding it our entire... Yeah, 50 episodes, no <laughs> Kubrick, so it's <laughs> got to be done. We've been avoiding him because, uh, well, to say it's, uh, well... There are discussions to be had, aren't they? But there's many insights. Oh, fantastic. Well, and, and not one of his, you know, most celebrated. So that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Very. I hope so. I hope so. Full Metal Jacket. When that will come out, team, who knows? Because I still haven't got around to writing a schedule, but we will do it. Um, in and amongst some, some pretty, you know, some pretty exciting projects coming up. We have our erotic season. Patrick, <laughs> don't be surprised. We told you this time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's coming up. Um, <laughs> 
Cool. Well, there we go. Full Metal Jacket to look forward to. So I guess we'll say our goodbyes, but we do have a few things coming up. We've got um, a guest spot with the big Lebowski. That'll be fun. We have to LVR MP. Yeah, that'll be our Alien series still continuing, despite it being like five months since the last film we discussed. <laughs> um, what else do we have? We have other choices with bargain bins. We have a new thing, the listener requests, because we're getting so many. Um, so yeah, th- these are all things to look forward to in 2021. Um, so we'll, we'll say our goodbye, shall we, team? Not a quote from the film, not a quote from the actor, but, uh, someone, Right before we started recording, as for levity, so quite frankly, my dear, I don't river dance. It's Galley in Glasgow, signing out. <laughs> uh, I'm beginning to smell wages all over you. It's Devlin in London. And I did do it for some bug-eyed rabbit. It's Patrick in London. I'd want no part of that bowl, except on a plate. Medium rare. <laughs> it's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone, and stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Your babies grow up to be cowboys Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks Let them be doctors and lawyers and such Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys Cause they never stay home and they're always alone Even with someone they love Like smoky old pool rooms and clear mountain morning. Little warm puppies and children and girls of the night. Them that don't know him won't like him, and them that do sometimes won't know how to take him. He ain't wrong, he's just different, but his pride won't let him do things to make you think he's right. Let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them get guitars and ride the old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such.